you're gonna help me or not? All right, all right, all right. I'll tell you what to do. Go that way. Really fast. If something gets in your way, turn. What a coach. All right, I'm gonna do it. <sighs> this is the Chiron Podcast number 22 for the month of May. This is Ryan Caldwell, and today I'm joined by my two colleagues, Grant Saris and Brian Cho. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Hello. Good afternoon. So, for our listeners that um, maybe don't know, we uh, decided we would take a month off of music um, and instead give you a little cutaway from the great 1985 movie for you young kids, um, Better Off Dead, which was a great John Cusack film. And we thought the uh, Go That Way Really Fast clip sort of describes the uh, the uh, market environment that we're in. Go really fast. If something gets in your way, turn. So we tried to figure out at least um, this month, what, what does the turn mean? And so topically, the couple of things we thought we would cover are first the earnings season, because this has been um, this has been a unique earnings season relative to, to the last eight years. And we're going to kind of dive into that a little bit. Um, definitely post the financial crisis. And we're hearing some things I don't think I've heard since 2006, 2007. And then the other thing that I wanted to touch on um, was sort of the recent underperformance in emerging markets um, of those markets relative to developed markets and maybe what's going on there. Um, but guys, I wanted to start off with earnings season. And this has been, like I said, it's been a little bit of a unique earnings season because you've had really good numbers for the most part. And I'll get to give you some numbers. In the U.S., we've had about 90% of U.S. companies have reported um, 72% of them beat the bottom line, but I thought maybe even more importantly, um, 70% of them have beaten the top line. And that's the first time, that's the best reading we've seen since 2006. So clear acceleration in the top line. Bottom line was fine, was good, but it's been good. Um, and expectations were elevated going in, and obviously um, elevated expectations were um, largely outperformed um, from a corporate perspective. If you flip over to Europe, we're about halfway through the reporting season there. They're a little bit slower. Really different picture. And I only bring this up because we've talked a lot about the difference between the U.S. and Europe as of late. Again, it was a very popular um, relative trade that um, strategists and media pundits were making at the turn of the year when talking about Europe versus the U.S. and saying you wanted to um, overweight Europe versus the U.S., we had some real differences of opinion with that. And so here we are in the first quarter. And if you look at European earnings, again, this is only 50% reported, but it is indicative. You've only had about 46% of companies beat on the bottom line and an even more paltry 42% beating on the top line. And that's the worst we've seen since 2013. And, um, you know, if you look at the composition for why, currency is going to be a big part of that. And 
the construct is going to be a big part of that. Again, as European indices tend to be far more cyclical um, than U.S. indices, and that's you know that's that's clearly something that uh, matters when you get to this point in the cycle. So there are a couple of things, guys, I wanted to throw at you in this earnings season, and I want to get your opinions on. The first one is um, obviously an inordinate amount of talk about peak earnings. That definitely because earnings were so good that market commentary um, very quickly goes from you know Goldilocks to is is too hot too hot and is this peak earnings so I want I want to get you, both your opinions on peak earnings the other the other question I wanted to throw out to the two of you is this concept of top line acceleration and margin flattening out so question you know it's almost back to peak earnings but are the margins peaking and if we're transitioning from an environment where margins were driving earnings beats to revenues are driving earnings beats, that's something if you would have said five years ago, I think everybody would have done a backflip about. But now that we're 10 years into the cycle, people aren't doing such a big backflip about it because, again, back to this worry about peak earnings and economic sensitivities. And then the other thing I wanted to talk about, and Grant, you had brought this up on the last podcast which was this notion that you could beat the top line and not beat the bottom line, which I don't think people talk about that much. But when you think about kind of cost push and how that kind of works its way into the margin. So I wanted maybe you to touch on that a little bit. So maybe let's start first with this um, topic of, so are we, do we think we're at peak earnings or maybe even more appropriately, are we transitioning from margins to top line? And if so, what does that mean? Okay, so I'll take a cut at that. Um, I don't think we're at peak earnings level, but we probably are very close to peak earnings growth rate, certainly in the U.S., um, maybe not in other developed markets, and certainly not, you know, our work would say certainly not in emerging markets, but I think you're really you know, most of these discussions are around the, the U.S. market, or the questions were around the U.S. market, certainly as the one that's furthest along in its cycle. So, yes, I would say, you know, we're c- very close to peak earnings growth rate. So that implies that the earnings growth rate is going to slow down. And, you know, what happens when the earnings growth rate slows down? I think typically, uh, you know, you start wanting to own growth stocks over cyclicals because you know that the growth rate is decelerating and you want to own companies where their earnings growth is going to hold up relatively well. So I think that is is certainly, you know, a big focus. Now, some of that is because you had the tax cut. So, you know, I think, and one of the reasons I think that, and we touched on this in previous podcasts was, you know, how much credit are you really going to get for the tax cut once the earnings start coming out? Because the market's going to say, okay, now what? And that's pretty much what's happened. You've had, you know, big earnings beats, but the quality of an earnings beat because you've had a big, you know, reduction in tax rate isn't the same or isn't seen as sustainable. You know, that's a one-time thing as as sustainable as either, you know, nice improvements in margins, which could continue, or top line acceleration. Now we can get to, you know, which one of those two the market thinks is more sustainable um, with your second question. But I think, you know, that's, 
you know, that's what the market uh, had to decide. I, I think one of the things that really stood out to me in this earnings season is it was one of the first times you could read the earnings report, um, know a reasonable amount about the company, and not know what the market reaction was going to be after having read the earnings report. And you saw this with a number, with a lot of companies. Uh, companies would beat, maybe the stock would open up up a few percent. By midday, it was down a few percent. And then maybe two days later, it was back up again. So there was a huge tug of war around what did the earnings report actually mean. Some people bought it, some people sold it. And it was really hard to figure out you know, who was going to take the dominant position in that and which way the the market reaction was ultimately going to end up. And I think that, you know, that really stands out to me in this quarter um, that even with some knowledge about the company, unless it was an overwhelming beat with great guidance and good margins and everything was perfect, you really didn't know what the market reaction was going to be. And there was some on the opposite side too, where the, the, the report was actually not very good at all uh, expectations were low, and some of those stocks, after initially going down, recovered and ended up going up. And there were very few of those, as you talked about. There weren't that many misses, but even some of the misses, I was surprised at how they were treated. Now, if the expectations weren't really, really low and they and they missed, they got they got clobbered. So, you know, there certainly were some of those too. But I think the market reaction was very uh, tough to figure out going into the quarter. So I'll stop there, let Brian maybe chime in, then we can get to your second question. Well, I think before I, ha- I have Brian go, I wanted to ask you this because you prompted a question. I mean, you've been doing this forever. And I can't remember a time where the market had been so dour on the bottom line being fine to good. Again, we're talking about you know 72% of companies beating. The bottom line being fine. The top line accelerating, again, the issue was in, in some companies is they either saw CapEx spend or cost push. So you saw some margin compression in some pretty big companies. Um, and But the bottom line was fine. The top line accelerated. Grant, generally, the market views or had historically viewed top line growth as more durable and valuable than margin expansion. And... All of a sudden, that doesn't seem... Now, maybe it'll prove out over a longer time horizon to be true as opposed to the kind of four to six week period we're talking about here. But I was going to ask you because I think you bring up a really good point. Again, you've been doing this a long time. Do you remember periods where the top line growth was actually penalized if the margins weren't expanding with it? Yeah, I can't think of one really off the top of my head. I'm sure it's happened. It's a, I'm sure it's happened late cycle, sure. which is what the market is deeming this to be. And I think, you know, that's I, I was waiting on this because this is kind of going and working its way into your second question. But I think um, you're right. Historically, all of the things being equal, you know, a great top line growth story is going to get a higher multiple than a low top line growth story that has the same amount of earnings. Cause in the long run you figure, well, the, the great top line growth story is more sustainable. I think, you know, at this point, I think what's happening is you're late enough in the cycle. People know that the fed is raising rates. 
the stronger the economy gets, the more they're going to probably raise rates. Uh, you have inflation coming in, so they're not real certain about how that's all going to play out on the margin side. And so with few exceptions, you know, the real, real secular growers, everybody else, this top-line acceleration is is looked at as not particularly hugely sustainable past, mm-hmm. you know, a handful of quarters. Now, we'll find out. I mean, if it ends up being a lot more sustainable in 19 and the growth rates don't decelerate to, to lower rates like we think, like the market I think expects right now, that's what's going to lead you to another leg up in the market. Because that whatever you think it's going to decelerate to from 20 plus percent earnings growth this quarter if it's a lot better than that, you know, you're going to have a revision and part and a lot of that will be how sustainable the top line is and you know whether there's kind of a a, a sustainable amount of inflation without getting too hot to where we, you know, invert the yield curve and raise have to raise rates too much. So, you're in this period of I don't know how sustainable, you know, these top line growth gains are going to be and margins seem to be getting close to peaking because of cost pressures. And so I don't know if I really want to pay up this late in the cycle for top-line growth acceleration. So that's the way I would explain it. Um, we'll, and, and ultimately, it's a, you know, we don't know. So we'll, we'll see. Yeah, yeah. we'll see. Um, but they definitely, the market definitely doesn't like uh, to see the, the, the expansion in margins, which have been prevalent for the last you know, 10 years, eight, nine, yeah. 10 years. <laughs> yeah. They don't like to see that turning around and going the other way. Cause then all you have left is the top line. And if you're late in the cycle, you that know, how good. much longer are you going to legitimately be able to count on top line growth? You might be able to count on it at, you know, said company that, you know, uh, has a web hosting service <laughs> and also delivers <laughs> packages to your house. But other than that, um, you know, there aren't many companies that the market thinks are going to just keep sustaining their top line growth, you know, through a, a downturn in the economic cycle. So I think that's where, uh, you know, why the market has so much angst about uh, top line beats, but margins underwhelming. And Brian, so I want to turn to you on the pi- uh, uh, and pivot here and, the a- and, and maybe ask the same question this way. Again, you have a really long history of these sort of turns and these transition periods in capital markets as to kind of what the market is looking for day, you know, on Monday and then it changes its mind and says, well, you know, now Tuesday's here and it's a different game. So I wanted to ask you, I mean, kind of the same topic, same questions. When you kind of think about one, where are work says we are in the cycle because again we tend not to pay attention to a lot of other people's works about cycles where where our work says we're in the cycle and then this again this debate about this acceleration in top line um i'm not sure in the aggregate and again you'll tell me here in a couple weeks whether you know margins as a whole really peaked and i don't think the market you know the market obviously We'll figure that out quickly, but the market was taking single company earnings releases, and again, some companies said, yep, this is probably as good as it can get for margins. Other companies said, we're going to keep growing them, and it's going to be fine, but again, kind of what say you on this topic of 
this transition and one is it really happening two you know how much should we pay attention to it given kind of the way we look at the world and then three like ultimately you know what does it mean for the market's ability to hold or expand valuation maybe holding it at this point is probably more important than expanding it um what are your thoughts well let me start with uh i guess uh the first quarry here um you know, I think what's interesting about uh, the latest angst in the market uh, is tied to the supernormal production of cash flows that we've been enjoying post-financial crisis and actually to to a certain degree uh, post-2000s. So if you think about that dynamic, which you know, which is based on this uh, global regime where emerging markets like emerging market countries like China is helping us actually with uh, you know our corporations generating higher profit margins because our capex has gone from here to there mm-hmm. so I think what we're uh, in a way the market is asking you know to a degree whether that dynamic can stay and you know whether that could be sustained so if there's any whiff of war, you know evidence that the margin story is now over, I think market is more prone to punishing those names. That's how I see it. And what I thought was interesting uh, in what Grant was commenting on earlier is that when you look at the market reaction to some of these announcements, it was really uh, confused. Uh, because I think for for the most part, there's all these uh, other headline news that's confusing the matters. However, at the end of the day, it is a margin story that we're watching. And it is, uh, you know, whether it's improving or declining is what we're watching. And so whether it's a top line or the bottom line, we want to make sure that margin is protected. And so going forward, I think, one of the things that's going to be even more important than ever before is this capital deployment discipline, right? Up mm-hmm. until now, we had a tremendous dis- discipline because, in a way, uh, um, many of the manager management teams were reluctant to spend any money because they didn't know anything to do. You know, they didn't know what to do with it. Uh, so they bought back shares. They increased the dividends. But now you have seen, or at least inclination to say, okay, maybe we're thinking about CapEx. Maybe we ought to buy another firm. So there are, is, there, there are a lot of talks about it. And so I think we need to watch that carefully. And ultimately, of course, you know, we, we know and we've been talking about this here and there, which is the fact that you have to see capital spending boom in the cycle. And that could potentially spell the end of the cycle. We haven't seen that yet. But it's interesting to note that there's definitely a discussion around that. If not that, uh, if you know they're not spending on organic growth per se, they're thinking about buying through acquisition, which is also interesting from my perspective. So that's one. And then when you look at the margins, I think in a way the story is really uh, 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 another way to say it is a. Uh, Regression to mean is what entire market is worried about, right? right? We had a supernormal 
margins. And so now, uh, actually, if you think about what happens in financial crisis, is that we actually talked about the same topic forever. You know, margins were super normal, and people say, okay, it's going to regress down to historical norm quickly. And that really didn't happen. And, and in fact, uh, it, it was reignited, or should I say the production has, margin production has been uh, better and it was sustained. So now uh, I think we're really beginning to worry about that declining. So I think that's a big change. And that's something we need to watch more so than ever before. And, and Brian, and this might be unfair to throw this at you because I know you're you're not sitting in front of your work, but maybe guesstimate for me, because I'm sure you know, um, revenue acceleration versus margin acceleration versus free cash flow acceleration, which one is, the? let me ask it this way, which one tests better? Revenue acceleration, margin acceleration, or just free cash flow acceleration? Actually, the first one, Interesting. acceleration is actually terrible okay. in terms of picking stocks. That's one. Mm -hmm. Number two, when it comes to margins, what you have to ask is whether you're, what margin, right? Right. Is it bottom line margin, yep. gross margin, or free cash flow margin? Mm -hmm. So having said that, gross margin and free cash flow margin acceleration is very powerful. Okay. On top of that, I would... I would say the free cash flow acceleration is very potent. So I will choose latter two as a predictor of alpha. In, in fact, they're a part of our models. Mm -hmm. Revenue acceleration, by it, as I said before, it doesn't really work. So it's not part of our model. Yeah, that's one. That was the one I wanted to get at because I, I remember when um, you know we've discussed these things. I think the thing that surprised me when you took us through this was how poorly revenue acceleration actually worked as a predictor of forward returns. And I, maybe not super surprising when you stop back and think about like cyclical revenue acceleration, the market heavily discounts. Now, my guess is in growth stocks, revenue acceleration is probably pretty important. And, or maybe just the durability of the growth rate may be more important than the actual acceleration. Um, but I wanted to call it out because, again, this was a quarter where you, again, sequentially and year over year, you're going to see revenue acceleration, which, you know, again, the media pundits will tell you is the holy grail for asset and asset inflation and stock price performances, revenue growth, revenue growth, revenue growth. I actually remember back in 2009 when we actually started to see earnings really lift off. And again, a lot of it had to do with the margin expansion Um margin expansion because of all the cost cutting that was done in 08 and 09, the pundits would come on TV and say, it's not real. Earnings growth isn't real because revenue isn't accelerating at the same pace and it's not worth that much. And again, you just made the point, like this has been the game we've been playing now for almost 10 years where revenue growth outside of a couple of sectors and a couple of companies has been relatively subdued, but the margins have been really good and continue to expand and as you pointed out, capital deployment alongside of that has been very disciplined. So managements have taken that excess cash flow and returned it either through dividends or buybacks. So it was like this kind of super, you know, either by you know by hook or by crook, 
um, super disciplined environment. And now the market, I think to Grant's point, is trying to figure out, like, is it all unraveling from a disciplined perspective? And if it is, oh, God, it's unraveling at the end of the cycle. So the discipline's coming out. Ray does the cycle is probably in, you know, it's whatever last legs, again, whether that's true or not. And so I wanted to drag that point out of you because, again, we've been talking about this notion of um, more narrowness and getting harder from here. And again, not talking about specific companies or sectors, but that going forward, and this is one of the reasons that we titled the, the podcast, go that way really fast. And if something gets in your way, turn, which is really a metaphor for you're really now from a, a selection perspective, you're having to narrow down to the things that are accelerating on all these things we just talked about, whether, you know, revenues, margins, and free cash flow. And again, it's not everybody anymore. Like we've had a mix of all these things. And so we've been saying that's probably the game you're going to have to play and develop markets. And that's go really fast until something gets in your way. And then you got to turn and that turn is something falls down, whether it's margins, whether it's revenue, something misses. And then effectively you start to get underperformance. So we've been kind of talking about um, be aware of, becoming kind of late cycle is always narrow. And so again, I'm, I've been in the camp or an early late cycle. That's my opinion. That's, we don't publish any work that talks about that. Um, but that's been my opinion that we're kind of at the beginning of early cycle. And one of the telltale signs of early cycle is a narrowing down into of late cycle of, yeah, I'm sorry, of late cycle is narrowing down. And, and again, that's what I'm trying to get at is, do we think this is the start of narrowing down? Cause we just blew away numbers in earnings season, Every this earnings season, everything was good. But again, if you listen to the conference calls and listen to the rhetoric amongst analysts, it's, I think, right back to Grant's point, which is, like, where do we go from here? Like, how can it get better? And, you know, is it too hot? I mean, I, I'm, I think Grant's point about peak earnings growth rate is spot on probably not going to accelerate off 20% earnings growth nine years into the business cycle. Not a big prediction. and But the absolute peak in earnings, I it's it, almost impossible to make that prediction sitting here today. It doesn't look like that's the case, but really difficult to even try to argue that where from where you sit today. And again, I, I think it's going to be really important to forward returns going forward I've been of the opinion that they can still be okay, and I think, Brian, you would probably endorse that given the quantitative work. However, I've said it's going to be a lot harder, and this year is already proving out that whatever returns you're getting are harder. You're either having to take it with fall, you're having to take it with you know high-growth stocks. I mean, again, aggressive growth has really outperformed year-to-date, and you can kind of see that across performance spreads. So I, I think that's the key. I think it's the key point you and Grant have hit on, which is, um, you know, who are the companies that can kind of power through this peak in growth rate and in 2019 still have, you know, better than GDP, nominal GDP-like earnings growth rates? And again, the composition of that is all going to matter to how much we pay for it. So I think you guys are hitting on the right things. And I think topically, this is the thing the market's really 
struggling with or trying to get its arms around. That's why, again, you guys have 25 years each plus of experience, so it's not your first cycle. And again, I just think we've been in this really, um, we've been in this really elongated, disciplined capital cycle of good margins and good capital return. At some point, we knew that was going to change. And if this is the change, what do you do? And and that's, I think, probably the last thing I would ask the both of you. What do you do? Well, I think we already hinted that you're going to try to find companies that can power through. I wanted to just follow up quickly on what Brian said, which is when you asked him which variables matter the most, you know, he said free cash flow margin expansion and gross cash flow margin expansion are more important than net margin expansion or top line growth acceleration. Well, we've just kind of flipped the market, right? The free cash flow margin acceleration and the gross margin acceleration, those were happening. But now that we have some inflation coming in, there's some cost push. It's making gross margins harder to beat. And then we have an acceleration in CapEx. We're still not at the point where it's anything scary, but CapEx growth rates are faster than they were. So you have some CapEx spending. And the other thing you have in a number of companies as you have working capital trends change. So you had working capitals, capital being pulled down, helping cash flow as top lines weren't accelerating. As soon as top lines start to accelerate, companies have to start building up working capital, which means all of a sudden your cash flow isn't growing as fast as your earnings and your top line anymore. And so you combine the working capital changes with the CapEx changes, and and now you flipped it. Free cash flow and gross margin are harder to beat, whereas the top line and the net margin, which you're getting the benefit of the tax cut, are easier to beat. And what Brian just said was the market, when you look back and back test, the market likes the gross margin and free cash flow beats better than it likes the the net margin and the top line acceleration. So you're really at a point where it's harder to beat on gross margin and free cash flow expansion. So I think when you Saying that to get to your question, I think you need companies that can still do, you know, a, a basically all of those things to some degree. You want to see top line growth. You don't want to be a real top line growth laggard while everybody else is decent top line growth. You want to be able to put up the earnings number, but you don't want to be in a situation where all of a sudden the the cash flow production and the gross margin profile that you've had this whole cycle you know, changes on a dime and all of a sudden all the earnings are being produced in some other way and not, and not also in conjunction with what it would, you know, it had been producing. So you kind of want your cake and eat it too. And there's very few, <laughs> few people that few can do it, do yeah. that, which is yep. why you narrow down. Yep. Yep. So, right. you know, I think, you know, that gets back to the point of, can you have top line acceleration without margin, without profit expansion and yet and, you know you can if you spend enough on capital which blows through and ultimately gets through your gross margin line and then your working capital expands significantly and your free cash flow production isn't what it used to be yep. and so i think you you know we're at that point in the cycle where that's going to happen to more and more companies and so um and less people a lot more and more we've always been free cash flow based but my sense is is that there based on the market's reaction and how companies have fared in this cycle, there's a lot more investors that have been looking at free cash flow too. It's not yeah, been historically than ever historically. happened. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, and because it's been too good of a, of a 
predictor, predictor of returns. Yes. Yeah, it has been the predictor yeah. of returns. So free yeah. cash flow multiples have become you know way more important in in the market's lens than PE on a you know relative relative yeah, basis. People still yeah. look at PE, but they look at free cash flow more than they looked at before relative to PE. They might look at PE more, but free cash flow has definitely become way more important. And so anything that starts to dent that free cash flow production is going to be met with uh, you know, difficult some, some violence, if you yes, will. Yes. <laughs> and so I think that's where we're at. And yeah. so it comes down to, you know, this is where the narrowing really starts to take place because um, the bar is high and it's high on a lot of metrics. And that's why when they report and they, you start checking off the boxes, if they don't check off all the boxes, you know, the market doesn't know what to do with that. And there's a big tug of war. And so, um, you know that's where we stand. We don't know how sustainable this growth rate and what and and whatever it decelerates to, what's that level? Yep. And I think that will ultimately that's the next question. That will ultimately yep. you know determine how much uh, how, how you know how much staying power the cycle will ultimately have, whether it will roll into the 2020s or whether it will be over sooner than that, from a stock standpoint. Yeah. No. Look, I think I think that's uh, that's bang on. Um, that's exactly the discussion I wanted to have, and it's great. I think I learned a few things from you old guys. <laughs> you know, actually, let me add one more thing to what Please. Grant was describing, mm-hmm. because it was clear example of as to why actually the fundamental analysis has to be sharpened more than ever before in the cycle. Because if you think about all the metrics that we just talked about and how it's changing, and how the market is reacting. The biggest uh, uh, importance uh, in what we need to do as uh, stewards of clients' capital capital is that you need to understand how that's going to change for individual firms. And really, only way to do that is a deep dive fundamental analysis. Yeah, I think that's another really good point, Brian. And I think... You know, for our listeners, I want to flag. I mean, Brian Brian runs a quantitative group. So the quant just told you, um, you might want to sharpen your fundamental pencil. And we totally agree with that. And and I think that's a really critical point in, in potency because obviously quant has gotten very popular, Brian, as you know. And again, like I said, Brian's an old guy. He's been doing quant before people were doing quant. Um, and you're right. This is now you've got to have a view on where they're going. And by they, I mean where managements are going. And um, the quantitative work is going to be slow to pick that up. And we are at, again, a bit of a transition point. And I think you raise a good point. Is that, And again, I would say that to all our listeners is you know, sharpen up your fundamental pencil because it gets harder from here relative to where it's been when there's been just broadly so much management discipline from a margin and capital deployment standpoint. Um, when you go to something else, it, 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 does beg, it does beg more analysis and harder work. So I think it's a really good point, Brian. Um, right, guys, I want to transition to the last topic just because we've gotten some questions on it and I understand why we're getting questions on it, um, which is sort of, Emerging markets kind of, you know, fairly recent, you know, last four to six weeks um, underperformance. And it's it's been noticeable. And obviously, that's something that's near and dear to our heart. So I figured I would 
I would touch on it. Um, from a high level, I wanted to talk about kind of the, the triggers. Some of these I believe and don't believe, but I think this is largely the narrative. So when you think about EM and you think about the big buckets, so China, Russia, EMEA, Latin America, Brazil, largely the big buckets. Um, so a couple of, a couple of things. Um, first and foremost, the dollar has had a, has had a very strong rebound in the last month. And, and again, it's, you know, it's been in a downtrend for, um, the better part of two years since, you know, probably early 2016, um, when the very strong dollar started breaking things, we've sort of been in a downtrend and, you know, we've had some reversion in that downtrend as of late. So that's one. I mean, anytime dollar starts to get stronger, um, generally speaking, EM starts to get a little bit squishier um, because so much of your return in EM can be currency related. And again, given some of the external balances, that all matters. Dollar strength is generally not viewed as positive for emerging markets. Um, but a couple other things. China, I mean, obviously there's been an inordinate amount of discussion about tariffs and trade wars. And obviously we had our delegation who just very recently was in China and now has left China, although nobody said anything about what was going on. Um, and so I, I don't think that the market has any more clarity on it, but that's clearly been a depressant, if you will, to both multiples and sentiment, which is another way of saying multiples in China. The other thing has been, there has been some um, concern that liquidity post-Chinese New Year has been tighter and that's causing some of the higher frequency data to be a little bit softer. Um, I think that's a more debatable point, but it is one that's been, been brought up. Um, when you flip over to Russia, obviously a lot of discussion about Russia given Syria, then sanctions. So that's been a place where it's been pretty bumpy in the last four to six weeks. Um, maybe it's stabilized here recently, but it's been pretty bumpy. Um, MENA in places like Turkey, you've had a really strong outbreak of inflation. And generally speaking, that doesn't bode well for currency. So we've seen some real currency weakness across uh, the MENA space. And again, like I said, Turkey specifically has been a big one. Um, and then Brazil, two big things. I mean, the growth rates, and we flagged this earlier saying, you know, Brazil wasn't a particularly cheap emerging market. And the growth rates are starting to flatten out and roll over a little bit. At the same time, you're starting to get some you know, political um, discussion again about who's going to take over in the transition of the government. So when you kind of add all that up in a ball of wax, I mean, what you would see is that um, EM definitely underperformed and the cheap stuff got cheaper again. And even actually some of the expensive stuff has underperformed developed markets as of late. And again, one of the things I would kind of point out is if you took maybe tech, the tech sector in China relative to the tech sector in the U.S. or Europe and Japan, it's sort of underperformed as of late. So even the expensive stuff um, with high growth rates haven't particularly done all that well. Um, so I think the question, again, when you add all that up is, you know, what do you do now? Um, Brian, our position has been EM for the most part, sort of X Latin America, couple of markets in Asia, X those markets, EM's pretty cheap. Um, and in our work, again, we, we've been tending to kind of lean toward um, value as a sort of style there to some extent. And so if you look at China, you look at Russia, you look at MENA, those are the true places in the world where there's real cheapness. And again, 
we are maybe halfway through, maybe a little bit less than that in the reporting season in EM, maybe back to our prior discussion in DM, what's been happening in EM is the top line is definitely accelerating because global growth is hooked up, but the gross margins and cash flow are all hooking up too because they're largely cyclical. And so they tend to have a lot of operating leverage. EM tends to have a lot of operating leverage, sort of like small cap. So when the cycle turns, you kind of get all this you know, inherent operating leverage, and the cycle turned somewhere mid-2016. And so we've been in the kind of you know, the benefit of having that cycle turn. So from a margins, returns, um, growth rate perspective, that's all been fine so far from an earnings perspective. But again, the kind of headwinds have been um, sort of the more macro stuff and high-level stuff. So Brian, kind of when you think about the you know, how do you think about EM now? Um, how do you think about EM now? Well, let's talk about them from our factor, you know, the way we measure in quantitative setup. So obviously, the first thing we will be looking at is valuation dispersion. Uh, and when you do that, uh, as you pointed out, China, South Asia, uh, EMEA, are where the largest valuation differentials are in uh, when you look at EM or DM market. So across the board, they represent the best, best value opportunities. So that's a great starting point. Second thing that I want to point out is, you know, when you think about uh, what works in uh, EM and what's underneath it, as you alluded to earlier, uh, cash flows are very important and uh, and all these valuations are very important. So what works in emerging market is really truly the valuation and cash production is most important. And what's not as important is actually momentum in emerging market. So all this consternation of, about negative momentum in emerging market is actually should be a secondary consideration. Having said that, what I thought was interesting is, thanks to all these macro events, so all these headline uses that we're hearing, clearly created situation where arbitrage risk, so the idiosyncratic risk among the stocks in the emerging market is very large across the board when you compare it to developed markets. And that's really what we're seeing. And at the end of the day, though, one thing that I want to point out is in terms of when you buy cheap stocks, one of the reasons why you should buy into cheap stocks is the fact that you have an optionality. And one way to capture that optionality is looking at arbitrage risk. So in EM, actually having some arbitrage risk is actually not a bad place to be. So when you put it all together, yes, it looks difficult place to be. There's a lot of consternation. There seems to be a lot of risk, which is all true. But that's the reason why they represent value opportunity. And that's the reason why it, it looks the way it is today in past four weeks. So from that perspective, I would say, you know, we're doing the right things. And we should be, you know, we, we should use EM's uh, part of our book as where we find value. Yeah, I think, so the really important point I want to pull out of what you just said is that when you have cheapness 
and high idiosyncratic risk. And just for our listeners, that's another way of saying that's when you have volatility and it sort of makes you sick to your stomach because um, in, in a cheap domain with relatively high arbitrage risk, like you get, you get a lot of all and it isn't generally, it doesn't always generally have to be the good kind of all. And so you've always said, Brian, when you get into these sort of domains and especially in emerging markets where I think, as you just pointed out, the most important thing is valuation or from a testing perspective, it's been the most important thing. You have to sort of elongate your time horizons, not sort of, you have to elongate your time horizons. So as we've been talking about in developed markets, we've started to think about shortening our time horizons because of all the things you guys just talked about in earnings and margins and growth rates and where we are in the cycle. And in EM, you kind of have to extend your time horizons because it's cheap, it's a late cycle cyclical, but and it is wrought with risk and it is wrought with volatility. Um, so it, it's a really different mindset when you're investing there or have, you know, some, you know, part of your investment portfolio in emerging markets. Um, and this has been one of those periods where, you know, obviously last year you had good performance, very good performance in emerging markets. The first part of the first quarter, you had very good performance. And then subsequently you had pretty poor performance since, you know, call it February, um, since the, you know, all the macro stuff sort of kicked off. And so that would be the other thing uh, I would advise too is if you're looking at emerging markets, which is um, you you need to extend your time horizons if that's a game that um, you want to play in your portfolio and be prepared when they're cheap. Even though they're cheap, they're very likely to have tremendous volatility as well. And I think, Brian, you brought up a really good point, which is you know, there is, there, there can be some excess return associated with high idiosyncratic risk when things are cheap. And again, I want to make that point, make sure they're cheap. I think the other point I would make too is, and we've said this on prior podcast, which is this is not your father's emerging markets. When you look at something like um, a, a passive index that kind of con- conglomerates um, emerging markets by um, market cap, you're going to see an incredible amount of technology in those um, indices. And again, you have companies that look like, you know, tech companies around the world. And so, like I said, generally, if you would have looked at EM a decade ago, it was very, very cyclical. Um, and so that's really all it was. Today, you know, if you look at the composition of some of these indexes, tech can be, you know, 25-ish, 15 to 25% of the indexes. And so it's got a different tenor to it and a different characteristic set. So, um, I think that's it for me on EM. Grant, anything our listeners should be thinking about fundamentally in EM that we didn't beat on? No, I think, you know, I'm not really overly focused on EM relative to the rest of the, as much as you guys are. So I think, yeah, I think you hit on it, which is it's, it's you know, dispersion is very wide. It's statistically wide enough for us to have, you know, meaningful, meaningful exposure. Whenever it's wide, it can get wider which is what you have <laughs> yes. kind of saying by it's volatile. So it, you have to extend your time horizon, be willing to live with uh, more value-centric, uh, if that if you can say that, uh, yep. in the strategy with regard yep. to EM. So you know that's where um, that's where we're exposed. We're exposed to value. I guess you know. I think the one thing is is that if you if you think that there's still economic 
cyclicality left in the world, yep. it's hard for me to think, given how cheap EM is, that it's not going to work from here. Now, if you come to the conclusion that, that there is a that the economic cycle is really ending, and that what we were talking yeah. about before was more about the profit cycle and developed markets, not the economic cycle. The economic cycle still has some some legs to it for another couple of years, um, unless you just really get you know these these political issues to to raise their head uh you would think that uh as long as the economic growth globally continues to to come along at a reasonable pace that you know um that em will do well i think you made the comment yeah there's a lot of noise around russia but when does russia not perform well when energy prices are going up absolutely i mean it usually performs well i know you know we had a month where it didn't because there was a lot of political noise. But uh, if that political noise doesn't come to anything and people realize that, you know, uh, that crude is, you know, 70 a barrel plus, uh, they will come back to uh, places that you know, produce have, yeah. that produce commodities. We have all this commodity worries about commodity inflation, which should tie hand in hand to uh, EM performance traditionally so correct you, you get by the, the the headline noise you're you're kind of setting up for a time when em would traditionally do pretty well if you have commodity inflation around the world is what i would say wow you sound like an em guy no <laughs> barely <laughs> so, newly minted newly newly mint. we newly minted an em guy well i think um i think gentlemen with that i think i will just leave you with our intro phrase, which is, go that way really fast, <laughs> and if something gets in your way, turn. So I think the best advice we have to offer at this particular point in the cycle. So uh, with that, gentlemen, I thank you for your time this afternoon, and uh, we will be back next month. Thank you, Grant. Thank you, Brian. Thank, thank you. you.